0: Now, when we get into chapter 6, he's writing to these Hebrew Christians that can see already persecution coming. And now they want to even go back to Judaism again and lay again the foundation. May I say to you that we speak today of the fact that these folk here were babes in Christ. And that's all they were. And we're enjoying, you know, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. And to grow in grace means to grow in the knowledge, you see, of the Word of God. The way you can know about Christ and come close to Him is through the Word of God. They now were in danger of leaving that and going back to Judaism. And he mentions these baby things of Judaism, which actually had to do with a ritual And everything he mentions here, very frankly, is that which, very candidly, has to do with these things that are babyhood things. Let us go on, he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, under perfection, completeness. Let's grow up. Let's start moving out. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. It's now turning from repentance... The works were the works of the law, you see, and continually trying to keep the law and then breaking it and then repenting, and then that's all baby stuff, and a faith toward God. And the Old Testament taught that. Just to say you believe in God, that doesn't mean that you come very far, friends. And of the doctrine of baptism, and that hasn't anything to do with New Testament baptism. It is the washings of the Old Testament, and there were many of them. They were now beginning to want to go back and do those things, and all of those, they were just shadows. They were little pictures. They were negatives, and the spiritual picture that you have developed from that, it all speaks of Christ. And they were getting away from the reality, you see, the laying on of hands. And that was on the great day of atonement, the high priest put his hand on the offering. And when an individual sinned, he put his hand on that. And a great deal of that goes on today. The laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. But now let's come up to the resurrection of Christ and a living Christ and of eternal judgment. And they believed in judgment. The Old Testament teaches all of this, but now let's grow up. Let's move away. And this will we do if God permits. Now, we come to that passage which has caused, I guess, as many difficulties as any in the Scripture, and some consider it the most difficult passage to interpret. I'm going to read this section now. Will you listen to it very carefully? because there may be some that do not have the Bible before them. "...for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance..." seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh off upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meet for them by whom its dress receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end, is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Now, I'm going to break off the reading at verse 9 and say that verse 9 is the key to this passage here. But we need the context to understand this passage. Let me read verse 9 again. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Now, I want to spend some time in this passage of Scripture. I have a little book, and the title of it is How You Can Have the Assurance of Salvation. The last chapter in that book, Is It Possible?, for a saved person ever to be lost. And that's Hebrews 6, and we deal with this passage I've just read in your hearing. And we'll be delighted to send this book to those who share in the expense of our program. And we send notes and outlines with no strings attached at all. And I hope you'll want the message, because we are going to deal with this now. And I want to say again, this is by all odds the most difficult passage in the Bible for any interpreter to handle, regardless of his theological position. Dr. R.W. Dale, and he had one of the great minds in the earlier field of conservative scholarship, he wrote, and I'm quoting him now, I know how this passage has made the heart of many a good man tremble. It rises up in the New Testament with a gloomy grandeur, stern, portentous, awful, sublime as Mount Sinai when the Lord descended upon it in fire and threatening storm clouds were around him and thunderings and lightnings and unearthly voices told that he was there. Now, that's the end of the quotation. Every reverent person has come to this particular passage of Scripture with awe and wonder. And every sincere person has come to this passage with a sense of inadequacy. And certainly, that's the way in which we're approaching it right now. Now, in moving into the heart of a study of these verses, we're immediately confronted with the amazing fact that commentators generally have avoided this chapter. A man that I have greatly admired, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, the prince of expositors, he has completely bypassed it in his book on Hebrews. And now, when we do come upon the interpretations available and summarize each, we can well understand why men have chosen to remain clear of this scene of confusion, because you can get many interpretations here. Now, I feel like that today, in the interest of an honesty of searching after the evident meaning of these verses, I want us to examine some of the interpretations. Now, the first interpretation we'd like to give, it to me is the most unsatisfactory of all. We find the teaching suggested is that The Christians mentioned are Christians who have lost their salvation. That is, they were once saved, and now they've lost their salvation. Now, there are many that hold that position, and for the most part, they are real born-again Christians themselves. But in holding this position, they're just as uncomfortable in this belief as I am when making a trip by plane. I know I'm safe on that plane as anyone there. But I do not enjoy it as the captain of the ship does. I know that. There are many folk today who are not sure about their salvation, and they're not enjoying it. Nevertheless, they're saved if they fix their trust in Christ as their Savior. It's not the amount of faith you have, but the one to whom it's directed. Now, these folk are in the general category of interpretation And they turn to this passage of Scripture more than any other since they deny that we have a sure salvation which cannot be lost and that the believer is safe in Christ. Now, I want to make it abundantly clear that I believe we have a sure salvation, and I think Scripture is abundantly clear on that Paul, Paul says in Romans 8, 1, "...there is therefore now no condemnation." to them that are in Christ Jesus. And my friend, he expands that great truth to the triumphant climax of such a bold statement down in verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God to justify. In other words, he puts the throne of God back of the weakest and humblest man who's come to trust Christ. And today there's not a created intelligence in God's universe that can bring a charge against one of these who is justified through faith in the blood of Christ. Now, Paul goes on in Romans 8, at verse 34 through 37. I'm going to read it. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. He died for it. Rather, he was raised from the dead. That's the second thing. He's at the right hand of God. That's the third thing. And the fourth thing, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, you just drink in those words, friends, and you'll have a great foundation of assurance. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness, perilous sword, even as written, For thy sake we're killed all the day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter, nay, and all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Does that satisfy you? Well, may I say to you, let's keep going. Listen to him. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, can you mention anything he didn't mention there? Can you mention anything then that would separate you from the love of Christ? May I say to you, this takes in the whole kit and caboodle. Here we are given the guarantee that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing that is seen, nothing that's unseen, nothing that's natural, nothing that's supernatural can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the Lord Jesus himself, makes this tremendous statement of our absolute security. Listen to him and trust him. Believe him. The word of God is quick and powerful. Well, believe him, friends. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life. What kind of life? Eternal life. Now, if you can lose it, It's not eternal, it's some other kind, but sure not eternal. "...and they shall never perish, and no one shall pluck them out of my hand. My Father who hath given them unto me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand." Now, it's not, therefore, your ability to hold on to Him, but of His ability to hold on to you, my friend. Now, he says here, with infinite wisdom and full authority of the Godhead that he can hold us and that they who trust him shall never perish. The question is, is your hope fixed in God who's all-powerful or in a God who may suffer defeat? Now, these are just some of the passages of Scripture. And I believe that this is a marvelous passage that makes it abundantly clear that you and I cannot be lost if we've been born again into the family of God. We become the Son of God through faith in Christ. Now, that's one interpretation. I cannot accept it. Now, the second interpretation, it has some merit in it. And these folk contend that you have here a hypothetical case, and that the if, if they shall fall away, and that the if here is just an if of possibility. That is, the writer here does not say that it happens, but if it were possible. Well, may I say to you, those who thus contend say that it's the biggest if in the Bible, and I'd have to admit that it is the biggest if in the Bible, if they're accurate. And if I didn't accept the position I do, I think this would be the one I would take. Now, there's a third interpretation, that there really is no if there in the Greek. It's a participle and can be translated, having fallen away. And therefore, these people then have another interpretation. And it is that these are professors, that they are not genuine believers. They profess to be Christians. Well, personally, I cannot accept this. This was the viewpoint of Matthew Henry. It was the viewpoint of Grant and Darby and and Dr. C.I. Schofield in his reference Bible, and I certainly recommend that Bible. But I don't think the notes are inspired, and I do not accept that interpretation. Now, I don't think that the ones here that are professors... I think that they are genuine believers. Now, I think the Bible does speak of those that profess their apostates in the church. Peter, in his second epistle, chapter 2, verse 22, says, "...it's happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog turneth to his own vomit again, and the sow that it washed to its wallowing in the mire." You see, there was a pig that went with the prodigal son up to the home when he returned home. But the pig didn't like it up there because he's a pig. And he went back. And today, there are those that are professors. But I don't think you're talking about that here. The language, according to my viewpoint, is too strong. And my feeling is that the thing that is said concerning them here, he said that they ought to be teachers and they needed to have milk because they were babes. But You don't give milk to an unsaved person. Unsaved person doesn't need milk. He needs life. Needs to be born again. He's dead in trespasses and sin. Now, when he's born again, a little milk will help him. And I think we're talking about those here that are babes. And he calls them therefore. And he urges them to go on. And I think if we read here first, touching those who were once enlightened... Notice, and they've tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. To me, this language clearly is used of those who are born-again folk. Yet, there are those who take the position that the ones spoken of here are just the Jewish people. For instance, if they were enlightened and tasted, fell away, it be impossible to renew them. That it was those that were living at the time of the temple, as it still remains. And I can't accept that at all. And then there's still another group, and they stress the word impossible. They say it's impossible to renew them, but it's impossible for a man to. But it's not impossible for God, because after all, he says it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a person to enter into the kingdom. And we can't enter on our own. We have to have someone... That is our Savior, our Redeemer. So that's an interpretation. And again, I cannot accept that. Now, we have many interpretations of this passage. And there are others that I have mentioned, of course. But there's one that's been a real blessing to my heart. And I trust that you'll follow me patiently. Now, I've always been dissatisfied with all the interpretations that I had heard. And I was actually rather sad about it. And I picked up the magazine of the Dallas Theological Seminary, Bibliotheca Sacra, several years ago. In fact, it's been many years now. And there was an article in there by Dr. J.B. Rowell, pastor of the Central Baptist Church in Victoria, British Columbia. And he had an interpretation... The best that I've heard, and I want to give him full credit that this is not something I thought of, but it is something that he did. And I always try to give the ones that I use their material. And I wish that a lot of folk who use mine would be as honest about it, because I think that we have a right, as I had a professor in seminary, he said, we ought to graze on everybody's pasture, but we ought to give our own milk. And my feeling is that we ought to use other people's material, but we certainly ought to give them credit. If we don't, we're plagiarizing. Now, Dr. Rowell's interpretation is the one that I have taken. I've developed it to fit my own understanding, of course. Now, first of all, I'd call your attention to the fact we are not discussing the question of salvation in this passage at all. We're talking about people that are saved people. We believe that they are saved people. As we've gone over this, the thing that is said concerning them, that they were once enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they're partakers of the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come. Now, we're talking about believers, and we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about reward. And he says here that to renew them again, not to salvation, but to repentance. And repentance is something God's asked believers to do. Read the seven letters he gave to the seven churches in Asia in Revelation 2 and 3. He says to every one of the churches, to believers, repent. That's a message for believers. Now, will you notice? We're talking here, therefore, what believers are to do for rewards. And we're talking about the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. We are talking about, Will you notice, he goes on to say here in verse 9, "...but, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that," what? "...accompany salvation." He hasn't been discussing salvation. The things that accompany salvation though we thus speak. He's speaking of the fruit of the Christian's life and the reward that comes to him as the result. And he discusses the possibility that because of their life, there's a danger of them losing their reward. That is the whole tenor of this passage. And there's a danger, actually, of their entire works. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that every man's work is to be tested by fire. And fire, my friend, burns your work that you're doing today for Christ is going to be tested by fire. And all of those figures that some of us preachers hand in about how many converts we had, when that's put in a fire, I want to tell you it's going to make quite a roaring fire. You can see it for miles because it was nothing in the world but wood, hay, and stubble. And we're going to talk about the work that we've done for the Lord. May I say to you, it's to be tested by fire. And he mentions that here. Now, we're not talking about salvation. What I wish I could do, I wish I could lay upon the heart of a believer that, friends, when you and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's not going to be a little sweet experience like sweetened water where the Lord Jesus is going to pat us on our back and say, you nice little Sunday school boy. You didn't miss a Sunday for 10 years. You are so wonderful. Now, I say to you, he's going to go deeper than that. And he's going to test you whether you've really got any fruit in your life. Have you grown in grace and knowledge of him? Have you been a witness for him? Has your life counted for him? Have you been a blessing to other people? My Christian friend? I'm not sure I'm looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ because I tell you, he's going to take Vernon McGee apart there. Not for salvation, but because I am saved. He's going to find out whether I'm going to get a reward or not. Now, that's what we're talking about here. Now, there is a place for good works because he's going to judge us at the judgment seat of Christ. And he's speaking here of the fruit of the Christian's life, because he speaks of that. In verse 7, the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh off upon it bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it's dressed, receive blessing of God. But if it just brings forth thorns and briars, it's rejected. Now, we'll note several passages here. When Paul wrote to Titus, young preacher, he said to him in Titus 3, 5, it's not by works done in righteousness, which we did ourselves, but according to his mercy he saved us. Now, from this, one might be inclined to think that Paul is not going to have much regard for good works. But you move on down now to verse 8 of this same chapter, and listen to him. "...that they who have believed God may be careful." to maintain good works. Now, good works do not enter into the matter of salvation, but when one becomes a child of God through faith in Christ, works assume supreme importance. They're very important. It's important if you're a Christian that you live the Christian life. It's essential that you do that. When I was in the university as a student, I was sort of an assistant to the teacher in psychology. I thought at one time I'd major in that field. And there was a problem at that time that psychologists discussed. They've moved away from it since then. But which is more important, heredity or environment? Well, my psychology professor, he had a stimulating answer. He said that before you're born... Heredity is more important, but after you're born, environment is the major consideration. Now, let's look at that. Before you become a child of God, before you are born again, works do not enter in. You cannot bring them to God because he won't accept them. He says, the righteousness of man's filthy rags in his sight. Now, you don't think God's going to take in a bunch of dirty laundry, do you? He's accepting sinners. But he accepts on the basis of the redemption we have in Christ. And if we have accepted him, we become a child of God. We're born now. Peter put it like this. But ye are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that ye may show forth the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's First Peter 2, 9. Now, If you've been saved, you're to show forth by your good works before the world that you're redeemed to God. Now, the Christian has something to show forth, and that's the thing that he's going to be judged or not. Now, if he's going to continue as a little baby and nothing in the world but a troublemaker and turn people from Christ instead of to Christ, may I say to you, then you can be sure of one thing, that there'll be no reward. In fact, you can be ashamed at his appearing. He says that. Now, will you notice, for as touching those, now will you listen to him, who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fell away. It's impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, in reading these verses that I've just read, we are brought now to the very center of the study. And I want you to notice for it is impossible if they shall fall away. Now, the word fall away is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's parapipto. And it's used in other places in Scripture. It never means apostasize, it simply means to fall down, to stumble. It would be absolutely impossible to give it the meaning of apostasy. And you will find that the word parapipto was used in speaking of our Lord. When he went into the garden of Gethsemane, it says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. Now, the word, it's the same one, parapipto, means just that he fell down. The word means to stumble or fall. Peter fell, but he was not lost. The Lord Jesus said, I prayed that your faith might not fail. He suffered loss, but he was not lost. Then there's the example, I think, of John Mark. He failed so miserably on the first missionary journey that when his uncle Barnabas suggested that he go on the second journey, well, Paul the Apostle turned him down and he says, never, this lad's failed. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm through with him. Well, thank God that God wasn't through with him. He stumbled and failed, but God wasn't through with him. And Paul the Apostle had to change his mind because... Before he died, he wrote, he says, bring John Mark with you, for he is profitable to me for the gospel. Now, may I say to you, neither man lost his salvation, but he sure failed, and he suffered loss for it. Now, if we go back to this first verse of the sixth chapter, we'll see that Paul is talking to folk here about repentance from dead work. You will understand that Paul is talking to them, not about salvation, but repentance. And you remember that John preached this to the people also. And what did he say? Bring forth the fruit that's worthy of repentance. He's talking about that which is the evidence of repentance. Repentance today does not mean the shedding of a few tears. It means turning right about face toward Jesus Christ which means a change in your direction, in your life, in your way of living. Now, many of these Jewish believers were returning to the temple sacrifice at that time. And the writer to the Hebrews was warning them of the danger of that. And before Christ came, every sacrifice was a picture of and pointed to His coming. But after Christ came and died on the cross... That which God commanded in the Old Testament now becomes sin. You see, those people were at a strategic point in time in history. They were at the time when a few days before they had come to the temple with a sacrifice because God commanded it, and now it's wrong for them to do that. Were you today to offer a bloody sacrifice, You would be sacrificing afresh the Lord Jesus Christ because you'd be saying that when he died 1,900 years ago, it was of no avail and that you still need a sacrifice to take care of your sin. Therefore, you would not have faith in his atonement, in his death, in his redemption. Now, someone has said that today. We either crucify or crown the Lord Jesus by our lives. Today, we either exhibit a life of faith Are a life by which we crucify him afresh. Especially today when we talk about getting back under the mosaic system and we have to keep the law. It's a serious matter to go back on these things. Now, let me look again at this word here. If they shall fall away. Having fallen away. You can leave the if out. It's actually not in the text at all. And when someone says that this is the biggest if in the Bible, well, there's no if here. Having fallen away or when they fall away. And if you want to use if, it makes, I think, better sense to use it, but not in the sense of condition, but argument. Having fallen away, it'd be impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Well, we're talking about the fruit of salvation. And it's a serious thing to have accepted Christ and then to live in sin, then to nullify what you do by being a baby and never growing up and doing nothing in the world but working with wood, hay, stubble. Now, Paul put this same thing in a little different language in the Corinthians. He says, No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Your salvation is a foundation. You rest upon it. You can not only rest on it, you're going to build on it. Now, if any man build, Paul says, you can build with six different kinds of material, wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stone. Now, what are you building with today? Are you building up a whole lot of wood, hay, and stubble? A lot of church work today is nothing in the world but wood, hay, and stubble. We are great on organization today and on committees and that sort of thing. But really, do our lives count for God today? Are there going to be people in heaven that will be able to point to you and say, because of your life or your testimony, you gave me the Word of God. And you remember he says, you should be teachers in the Word. And now you need somebody to teach you again. I rejoice today. And somebody said to me, how can you rejoice in that? They're taking your place. All these Bible classes that are springing up and they're using tapes and your material while they're going to saturate the world. Friends, I hope they do. Why? Because of the fact that is the purpose of all of this is to get out the Word of God today so that He can bless us, so we can grow up, so we can be a blessing to other people. And that is the thing that he's talking about here that is so essential. And there is a grave danger that we build in wood, hay, and stubble. And by the way, there is a difference between a straw stack and a diamond ring. You can lose a diamond ring in a straw stack because the ring is so small. And I'm afraid today that a great many folk trying to make an impression one pastor told me, said, I'm killing myself. I have to turn in a report this year bigger than last year, and we have to increase church membership and converts and giving and giving to missions. My friend, may I say to you, let's quit this building in Wood, Hay, and Stubble. How many people were taught the Word of God? How many people actually turned to Christ? How many people were really blessed? And that's the thing he's talking about here. He says, there is a danger that you're going to build with wood, hay, and stubble. And every man's work's going to be tested by fire. Now, what will fire do with wood, hay, and stubble? Poof! It's just going to go up in smoke. There will be nothing left. And that's what he's going to talk about here. The fact that it'll be destroyed. That's what the Lord Jesus talked about in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. He says, I'm the vine. I'm the genuine vine. You're branches. Now, you're to do what? Bear fruit. You're to bear fruit. What kind of fruit? He says, I'd like a full crop of grapes. And he said again in a parable, he made it very clear that the seed falls on good ground. What's it to do? Bring forth 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. He'd like to get 100-fold. Now, he says, if there's a branch... It won't bear fruit. Why do you say, I'm going to take it away? going to burn it. going to remove it from the place of fruit bearing. And my friend, I think he's doing that today. Now, I look back here in Southern California over about 30 some odd years that I've been in this area. I came here in 1940. Well, I have watched a great many things happen. I have watched a layman. They were men who worked in wood, hay, and stubble. And then I've seen them work with gold. I know a layman that was so prominent when I came here, that man got involved in dishonest transactions. I wouldn't want to go into the presence of Christ, Is that man's going to have to go. I think that he's lost his testimony. And yet, a gifted man. And a man that you can't help but like, I, even today, consider him a friend. And then I know a minister. He was so attractive. In fact, he was a little too attractive. And he had an affair with another woman. It was not his wife. Finally divorced his wife. And he tried during all that time to keep on teaching, but it didn't amount to anything. He was just putting up a whole lot of straw, not even bailing hay. He just making a big old haystack. And finally, the match was put to it, I guess, because he sure didn't leave anything down here. Oh, today, how careful we should be about our Christian lives. And we can't do this in and of ourselves. We need to recognize that he is divine. If we're to have any life, it must come from him. And if there's any fruit it must come from him, it can only go through us. Because that's all a branch is, it's just sort of a connecting rod, that's all. It connects into the vine and it gets out and bears some fruit, a few grapes out there. That's the thing that he's talking about here, friends. Now, let's look here again at what he's saying. If they shall fall away, having fallen away, having fallen down, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. The thing is, you can shed tears all you want to, but you've lost your testimony. That preacher came to me, talked to me. He said, I'm through. He's attempted to move to several sections up and down the coast and every place. He's had an affair with a woman. And what's happened? He's lost his testimony. He can't go anywhere today. May I say to you that he's talking about that here. It's impossible. They renew them to repentance. I don't question his salvation. I say this, a gifted individual, a man that can be mightily used to God, but not seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, they put him to an open shame. My friend, any time that you add any works to your salvation, any time, that you are saying, I'm a born-again child of God, and then you live like the devil's son, then you're crucifying the Son of God. Because he came to give you a perfect redemption and to enable you by the indwelling Holy Spirit to be filled with the Spirit of God to live for him. Now, he goes on, "...for the earth which drinketh in the rain..." that cometh off upon it, that bringeth forth herbs meat for them, for whom its dress receiveth blessing from God. These herbs bring forth a blessing to man. They are delicious to eat. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. Now, the word reject here is the same word Paul used. Paul says, I keep under my body that I might not be rejected or cast out, but that I might be disapproved. Paul says, when I come into his presence, I don't want to be disapproved. I don't want the Lord Jesus to say to me, you failed me. Your life should have been a testimony. It's not. And friends, you're going to hear it if you don't live for it. Now, somebody needs to say that. I know that's not popular. It's lots popular today to have some comforting music and read a lovely little poem and Quote John 14 of the 23rd Psalm, and they're wonderful. Oh, my, how we need those. But, my friend, you're going to stand before him someday. And you're before him today for that matter. Now, he says, you could be disapproved. And thank God Paul could say when he came to the end of his life, I finished my course. I have kept the faith. (laughs) I know there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Oh, to live for God today. But, beloved... Now, this is the key. We are persuaded better things of you. Paul says, I'm persuaded that you today are going to live for God. And you're not going to be a babe in Christ, but you're going to grow up and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Now, he goes on, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Now, work and love won't save you, but if you're saved, I tell you, this is what he rewards you for, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints, and do ministry. Now, here's where good works come in. They certainly have an important part in a Christian's life, but they have nothing to do with your salvation. Now, he goes on, We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Now, how wonderful this is. Work and labor of love is not salvation. And we need the full assurance of hope unto them, that ye be not slothful, but us of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, he's made a lot of promises to us, if we're faithful to him. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. You know, when you take an oath, you take an oath on something that's greater than you are, and nothing greater than God. So he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I'll bless thee, and multiplying I'll multiply thee. He promised Abraham that. But now God says, I'll take an oath. This is what I'm going to do. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. There's something here that I think is quite wonderful. He patiently endured. What? A new assurance came through trusting God, friend. You walk with God. You grow in grace. And the knowledge of Him and the knowledge of the Word of God brings you to a place of assurance. And that assurance cannot be gainsaid. Now, verse 16, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Men take an oath on something greater than they are, And God did not swear by the sun, moon, or stars, but by himself. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who if fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So what are the two immutable things today? the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and his ascension and intercession in heaven for you and me today. He mentioned four things in Romans 8. Now he divides them into two immutable things, the death and resurrection of Christ. And now he's yonder, the living Christ at God's right hand, his ascension and intercession, which hope we have as an anchor. "...of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil." Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. Aaron was never a forerunner, but Jesus is. He's gone ahead. He's made an eye priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, he's going to talk about Melchizedek, and he sure hopes that you and I will not be babies, that we're going to be full-grown sons and hear him.